Namaste. We are very pleased to be joined today on the podcast by Dr. Michael Rubin, one of the foremost foreign policy experts who we've had the pleasure of having on the podcast before to talk about his recent trip to the Indian Union territory of Jammu and Kashmir, about some of the uh, current events in Pakistan and what it means for U.S. policy, as well as U.S.-India policy as we move forward towards uh, 2024. Uh, Dr. Michael Rubin is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he specializes in Iran, Turkey, and the broader Middle East. He's also written extensively on Pakistan and the broader region. A former Pentagon official, Dr. Rubin has lived in post-revolution Iran, Yemen, and both pre- and post-war Iraq. He's also spent time with the Taliban before 9-11. For more than a decade, he taught classes at sea about the Horn of Africa and Middle East conflicts, culture, and terrorism to deployed U.S. Navy and Marine units. Dr. Rubin is the author, co-author, and co-editor of several books exploring democracy, Iranian history, Arab culture, Kurdish studies, and Shiite politics, including Seven Pillars, What Really Causes Instability in the Middle East, Kurdistan Rising, Dancing with the Devil, The Perils of Engaging Rogue Regimes, and Eternal Iran, Continuity and Chaos. Dr. Rubin has a PhD and an MA in history from Yale University, where he also obtained a BS in biology. Welcome back to the podcast, Michael. It's a pleasure to have you with us again. Hey, thanks for having me. Great. Uh, Michael, so where I want to start is you recently visited uh, the Indian unit, Union Territory of Jammu and Kashmir, I believe back in October. I uh, just wanted to, first of all, um, have you tell us a little bit about your trip, how that transpired and what you observed there on the ground. Well, as you know, I'm a security analyst by training and I had therefore been wanting to visit Kashmir uh, for quite some time especially after the revocation of Article 370. I know enough not to uh, believe everything I read in the press. And so I wanted to make my own assessment, especially because I've been to many other uh, quote unquote conflict zones. And so have a pretty good sense, a pretty good antenna for, for what's going on uh, and can make comparisons. And also in the immediate aftermath of the revocation of Article 370, I had been in Islamabad, Pakistan. I had been, uh, moderating or and or observing a um a, a panel at a, at a conference at Pakistan's National Defense University and so I had certainly seen the Pakistani perspective the billboards giving the countdown uh comparing Kashmir Jammu and Kashmir to the Gaza strip and so forth and that that seemed to be a little bit far fetched so I decided I was going to see things for for myself and for our listeners, I think most people know, but of course, Article 370 was the uh, provision in the Indian Constitution that allowed the former state of Jammu and Kashmir to have a degree of autonomy and prevented certain federal laws from applying to the state. Um, what ended up happening, though, was it prevented the state from being fully integrated into the rest of the Indian Union and some of the provisions um, that protect all Indian citizens from discrimination and provide equal rights to not apply to Kashmir. And of course, there was a security element there in trying to better integrate um, the state into uh, the rest of the Indian Union as well. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And maybe what we could do is discuss it uh, category by category to talk a little bit about the security, a little bit about some of the integration, uh, because certainly I was able to have discussions along uh, those lines. Yeah. So let's maybe talk with the security aspect, because I think that is one of the topics that's discussed the most. Um, so I think, you know, maybe start by saying what you kind of heard and maybe in American circles also about the security aspect, whether it was from the State Department or otherwise, and then what you actually experienced on the ground. Well, most of what I heard was actually quite negative. And certainly over the last several decades, I had heard issues with regard to uh, security problems in Kashmir, terrorism in Kashmir. Now, again, I, I've worked enough in the field that if there is terrorism in Kashmir, that's not necessarily the, it's the fault of the terrorists. It's not the fault of Kashmir itself. And so I went into that with eyes wide open and terrorism doesn't just passively manifest. Usually there is a state component, a sponsorship component, a logistical component. And so that's also what uh, I certainly wanted to understand and know about. But what I, I can say that, look, I flew in on a regular, I think it was uh, Vistana or one of the local regional airlines. 
Uh, I didn't need any special permission to go. Um, as a foreigner, I had to just sort of register my hotel reservation um, at a desk at the airport. Then I went out to try to get my taxi, which hadn't showed up. Uh, but it was all, I mean, it was actually a good experience. It was all quite relaxed. Finally, after about 45 minutes, my taxi showed up because of uh, traffic. And I, I went to the hotel. I think I was staying at the Radisson Blue or or some uh, hotel like that. And um, I'm certainly driving through Kashmir, the first uh, driving through Srinagar, the capital of Kashmir. The first thing that was readily apparent was how busy everything was. Um, that A, there is traffic, but much more important than traffic, there was, there was commerce. There was, I passed, I got it in the morning. There are any number of school buses taking kids to school uh, from Islamic schools, um, perhaps sponsored by some of the Gulf states, uh, to regular state schools and so forth. I, I mean, I got there during the bad get your kids to school rush hour. Um, the cafes were open. The businesses were opening. Now, when I would go underneath highway overpasses and such, I would see security forces. But... Security forces, having traveled, I mean, extensively in South Asia, in the Middle East, in Africa, in South America, security forces don't bother me. What I look at is the tension that surrounds those security forces. And when I was in Svinagar, the thing that really struck me was I saw no tension. And you would have kids walk right past soldiers. Uh, the soldiers wouldn't bother the kids. The kids weren't afraid of the soldiers. The same thing was true with uh, regular commuters and so forth. Uh, the only time I saw the actual soldiers interact with uh, ordinary civilians was when they were trying to deconflict after someone's car accident, not one involving the soldiers, but one that happened nearby. And so there was just a state of relaxation. When I asked people about this later in Kashmir, as I got to talk to any numbers of folks, what they said is, you know, they were angry, too, when in the immediate surprise revocation of Article 370, there was a communications blackout, the Internet was cut and so forth. But in hindsight, what they see is that it was like ripping off a Band-Aid really quickly in order to get back to normalcy as as fast as possible. And in hindsight, they actually support what the government did. And when they see that when they have seen everything which has transpired since the revocation of Article 370, they're even more positive. And I, I do need to say that I don't normally comment on internal Indian politics. It's not my um, it, 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 it's not my purview as a security analyst. But that said, I'm conscious of this, and I understand that Prime Minister Modi can be controversial in certain circles. But what many in Kashmir made a point of saying is even if they didn't normally support Prime Minister Modi, in hindsight, they respect what he did with regard to Article 370. There are a couple exceptions which we can go into, uh, but people see that as a whole, across all classes of society, with perhaps the exception of some of the old established aristocratic, aristocratic elite, that people across society benefited from what happened and that they're much better for today than they were just a few years ago. And did you find that, um, I, except obviously for a couple of exceptions, did you find that view was similar, whatever part of Kashmir you went to? Because I think the South is considered a hotbed or had traditionally was considered a hotbed, a more militant activity. Um, was that opinion uh, shared outside of Srinagar and in other parts of the territory as well? Oh, yes. I mean, I didn't get to Jammu, but I did go to the southern part of Kashmir. I went, uh, I mean, I went to the site of the Pulwama massacre. Um, the, the biggest competition, it seemed to be in the area around Pulwama was over who was going to sell the most cricket bats as industry along the highway has, um, I, I mean, has exploded. And now the issue is just who can export most. Uh, who can export more? The same thing was certainly true with regard to the um, the, the saffron export and so forth in the region. Uh, what was really striking in southern Kashmir was also just um, look. I mean, it was 
First of all, I drove down to Southern Kashmir uh, in the late afternoon. It was already dark by the time I decided it was time to turn around and come back. And there was absolutely no problem coming back several hours after dark. Uh, I mean, to give the driver a break, we stopped at a roadside restaurant. Uh, There was some sort of information session for merchants as some, I don't know what it was. It was some sort of um, kitchen utensil company was trying to convince the merchants to carry their wares. The fact of the matter is everyone was out and about. It was crowded and it remained crowded. Most importantly, even very late at night, there was no checkpoints that were manned. Uh, The commerce was free. And that was not only in the northern part of Kashmir, as you say, but also in the southern part of Kashmir, which traditionally had much more of a security problem, especially back before the revocation of Article 370, when it seems that Pakistan's Inter-Services Intelligence Agency was still successfully sponsoring infiltration into the area. You mentioned something um, that I want to pick up a little bit more on right there is the other side of the equation, that sponsorship of the groups that were, you know, fomenting terrorism in the state, um, Pakistan and their inter-service intelligence agency. You said before when they were sponsoring, what is in terms of what they are doing now or um, the success or lack of success of these militant groups to be able to carry out activities in um, in the state right now? How do you see that situation vis-a-vis Pakistan? sponsorship? Well, let me first say that I've, I've um, made three or four trips to Pakistan uh, since the year 2000, which I guess was my first trip to Pakistan when I went through, uh, I mean, Islamabad, Peshawar, I went through the Khyber Pass into um, Afghanistan, which was controlled by the Taliban at the time. And certainly over the course of that 20 years, I've seen a certain obsession inside Pakistan with India. Um, I mean, if I if I talk to Indians and I ask about Pakistan, yes, people have opinions, but they're much more interested in uh, school, in the IITs, in um, the, the exams, in business and so forth. Pakistan is far down the list. When I'm in Pakistan, the obsession is front and center uh, in a way where it's clear as someone who again, who's lived in Iran, who's lived in Syria and so forth. It's been used by the government to distract the population from the Pakistani government's own failings. Now, the whole reason to be of Pakistan by this narrative has been to, quote unquote, liberate Kashmir. Now, here's the thing. Now that Indian Kashmir is quite obviously doing far better than their Pakistani-occupied counterparts, and that doesn't matter whether you're Hindu, whether you're Muslim, whether you're anything else, the fact of the matter is that this is a dagger to the heart of Pakistan's claims to legitimacy. And how can they say that they are the true guardians of Kashmir when they lob off huge chunks of Kashmir. I mean, for example, Gilgi, and then they repress the Gilgitis and basically sell them off to the Chinese. Among Muslims, if you are born in the Pakistani-occupied portions of Kashmir, then you are now doing far worse than being a Muslim in Svinagar or in Pawama or in other areas of Kashmir. So one of the things I'm worried about as an analyst is looking forward. If Pakistan has struck out in trying to distract and incite with regard to Kashmir, where might they then turn? Because they're not going, I mean, it's not within the Pakistani system. It's not within the ISI in order to accept accountability and realize they need to focus on themselves instead of blaming outsiders. And so what I'm worried about, and I think what the West needs to be conscious of, the Americans to a much greater extent, the Canadians, is that the Pakistanis might take a step back from Kashmir and try to um, create this artificial Khalistan freedom movement um, in Punjab, which is even more artificial than their Kashmir freedom movement. Uh, But this would give a new excuse for terrorism. And from the point of view of the United States or Canada, we just need to be very, very careful because of the terror finance aspects of this. 
And this uh, Khalistan movement that you talk about is in fact more alive and active in the West, such as places of Canada and the U.S., as you mentioned, the U.K. Um, to an extent as well. Um, but there is, at least up until now, little support in actual Indian Punjab for this separatist um, Sikh theocratic state. Um, but it is, I think, something that's being kept alive um, in the in the West, in the diaspora, for sure. And so that, as you're pointing out, can certainly catch fire even in India as well. Absolutely. There's two things to keep in mind here. First of all, um, too often the Pakistani government, the ISI, will treat Western diplomats and perhaps the Western media, human rights organizations, and so forth as useful idiots in order to promote a, um, a narrative which simply doesn't um, bear resonance to what's going on on the ground. This is why it's so important uh, for me to have actually seen what's going on in Kashmir. Uh, because again, while some people did complain, and I can get into that uh, in a second, the fact of the matter is, it wasn't what the Pakistani propaganda was was suggesting it was. Um, we we need to be very, very careful about this because Kashmir, I mean, it's had a tourist boom. It's back to, uh, I mean, the hotels are full. Uh, the tourists are back. Um, commerce is thriving. The cinemas are open, which a lot of Kashmiris commented on. That is the most peaceful, the freest it's been since the 1980s, at least. Uh, and that this is a very positive step. They're not upset to get rid of the old aristocratic, uh, aristocratic elites who they believe didn't have their um, best interests at heart and to be much more integrated into society. But you're absolutely right. I mean, when you look at how peaceful Kashmir has been the last few years, you see that the the core of the violence wasn't indigenous. It was coming from the outside. The core of those who were arguing for strikes it, uh, or who were sponsoring strikes and other stoppages, it wasn't indigenous. It was coming from outside. And the danger is that those tactics will now, the ISI will now try to apply those tactics to um, Punjab, where they failed in Kashmir. Now, you had Operation Tupac and so forth, and it's good that the Indian intelligence over the years has exposed the Pakistani playbook in this regard, but it's also important, and this is always the case in a democracy like India as well, that the day-to-day -day, uh, dynamics of the democracy, that we don't forget the, the long picture, uh, the, the broader picture, that we don't forget the forest through the trees, and recognize that there's a neighbor which isn't democratic, isn't democratic in reality, which is trying to undercut and delegitimize what's going on in India. Mm. Yeah. Now, you did a couple of times mention that there were a couple of people or a couple of people that you talked to, at least, um, that weren't happy um, with uh, the revocation of Article 370 or perhaps the current situation. Maybe if you could talk a little bit about that and specifically what the concerns were or what the anger was directed towards. Okay, well, um, where I, the only place I really saw anger uh, or resentment towards the revocation of Article 370 was when I went to visit one of the universities. And I sat in on a faculty meeting, um, and the faculty was trying, was discussing and arguing uh, with regard to hiring new faculty. And when I asked about Article 370, the faculty, the dean, and so forth were unilaterally negative because they said they now had to go through New Delhi, that it wasn't fair they had to go through New Delhi, that it was undemocratic and so forth. Uh, that was their complaint. The way I interpreted this was that they were no longer able to dispense patronage to a very close circle, that they had to open the competition, that they were losing uh, their their fiefdom was starting to um, fray at the edges. Hmm. And to me, that's not necessarily uh, a negative consequence. So I could understand that the old stakeholders would certainly be upset. I should also say that when I asked about the more hard aspects of security, and people were arrested when Article 370 was revoked, that what I have been told, and I have no reason to doubt in this case, I followed up and confirmed is that the government has been very wise. While they had initially arrested a number of people, 
especially with regard to suspicion of relationship with terrorist groups and so forth. Um, what they've done is starting, they, they've started to release many of these people um, from, from detention or from house arrest on their own recognizance. Uh, frankly, a lot of these people can see that things are so much better now. And so it almost looks like in Kashmir that the strategy of Modi is what the strategy of Paul Kagame has been in Rwanda, which is when someone has been guilty of terrorism, you give them a chance to rehabilitate and reintegrate. And what you actually find is that bolsters the narrative, uh, regardless in Rwanda's case of what ethnicity you are, regardless in India's case of what ethnicity or religion you are. It builds sort of a national identity in a very positive way. And so whether you're Muslim, whether you're a Hindu, whether you're a Christian, people within Kashmir are recognizing themselves as Indian first and foremost, especially now that they feel that the Indians aren't taking advantage of them, that they are um, fully integrated and, in fact, able to um, achieve what they believe based on their own talents is due to them. And I should say here that the Kashmiris were very proud and perhaps uh, you have, of course, more experience in India than I do. So perhaps every region talks like this. But the Kashmiris talk about how when school isn't interrupted, they are, of course, the smartest, most cosmopolitan people in all of India. And that now that there are no interruptions, now that there are no impediments for them um, doing as well on the exams as they can do on the national exams, what they are finding is that they are disproportionately um, their their achievements are being disproportionately recognized in merit-based exams, in sporting events, and so forth, and that they are very, very um, proud of the fact that they are now, that what they're saying was the impediment, it's clear, was never India. The impediment was some very socially conservative, um, closed-minded people that perhaps weren't representative of the true Kashmir. Yeah, that is definitely an Indian quirk and everyone thinking that they are perhaps the smartest and the best at everything. But um, um, that's that, that's good to hear. And when you mentioned kind of the impediment being this socially conservative environment, and I think that goes to now how movie theaters are open again after so many decades. Women's uh, you, sporting events. And sporting events. And maybe talk a little bit about how this has impacted women, um, because I think that was one of the issues um, that we saw under the um, the yoke of militancy and the and the former kind of uh, corrupt um, dispens, uh, dispensation there is that, that women suffered quite a bit. Well, I mean, this is something that women actually remarked a great deal on. Because outside of Svinagar, I had the opportunity to talk to some of the local political uh, chiefs at the lower level. And excuse me, I forget the technical term for each of the levels. Um, but there's much more neighborhood politics right now, elected representatives, uh, sub-district districts, and so forth. Uh, and women have embraced this. You have a lot of first-generation, uh, first-time political leadership uh, and a grassroots, which is now being empowered and has every ambition to rise up uh, in the Union territory and eventually uh, with the reintegration of Kashmir as a full state within the state into Indian politics more broadly. Uh, so women were, were very happy for that opportunity. I met a number of women businessmen who had invested um, in land that no one else wanted and created all sorts of uh, centers. I mean, someone had invested and created a fish farm. Someone else had created uh, an eco-tourism center and conference center, and all these were extremely successful. While there was the chattering of uh, townsmen around them, and this didn't just affect women, this affects, of course, all new ideas in a smaller society. Uh, what they found is with persistence, uh, people became very happy that they were providing jobs uh, and increasing the job opportunities to uh, areas outlining, outlying the urban areas and revitalizing, if you will, the village and the rural economy. Uh, younger women were very, very happy that they were, number one, able to compete. And of course, this is special to uh, certain families where I, I met one um one, she must have been about 16 or 17 year old, uh, year old teen girl uh, who said that she had been obsessed with karate since she was eight or nine 
Her dad let her do this. Uh, she had to face grandmothers who were basically trying to intercede with her parents as she was becoming much more competitive, uh, competing in New Delhi, competing in Thailand, winning medals. Who's going to want to marry her? Are you sure this is a wise thing to do? But what she said is, A, her father and her mother stood up for her, which, of course, is positive in a family dynamic. But then what's happened is she became an inspiration to a lot of other of her schoolgirl peers, many of whom have started competing in other sports. And so, again, that contagion of opportunity has spread rather than a contagion of fear. And that itself has convinced me that Kashmir truly is beyond the tipping point in a way that I still have questions about um, in Somalia, in Iraq, uh, even in um, some of the United Arab Emirates, where it doesn't seem that there is that open-minded, I mean, for example, Sharjah, which is a more conservative emirate, where it doesn't seem that there's that open-mindedness um, and a lack of fear, which now is very clear in Kashmir. Interesting. I want to shift a little bit to how the U.S. in terms of policymakers at least view this new reality um, or if they uh, understand the new reality there, Uh, because I think when the revocation first happened, you know, we heard, you know, to the administration's credit, there was not real interference per se, but there were a lot of statements coming out, um, both from Congress as well as the administration about concerns, um, security concerns, uh, our crackdowns, um, other, we kept hearing about the blackouts of the internet, et cetera, and communications. Um, I mean, do you think that there's an understanding now of what the reality is within the administration, state department, um, as well as within Congress? Um, unfortunately, I don't. Well, I mean, certainly within Congress, perhaps some people know. And I would certainly urge congressmen to go to Kashmir. Um, I mean, I guess with regard to country clearance, they have to just for protocol's sake, tell the Indians they're coming, tell the U.S. Embassy they're coming. But again, I didn't need any special permits. This isn't the sort of guided tour that um, that that journalists or analysts will get if they want to go to Bashar al-Assad, Syria, or or the Islamic Republic of Iran, or even Azerbaijan or Turkey. This is a situation where um, I could ask advice from Indian officials, but I was able to go to where I wanted. I didn't have to keep to their schedule. I could make my own schedule. That shows a degree of confidence. Where I worry about with regard to the State Department, number one, it's absolutely inexcusable more than 500 days into the Biden administration that we don't have a real American ambassador inside India. Yes, I understand that the person whom Joe Biden nominated several months into his his presidency, uh, the, the former mayor of Los Angeles, hasn't been able to get Senate support. But in a situation like that, then you nominate someone else. Because India, which probably as of today is the most populous country on earth, it certainly, of course, is the largest democracy, is simply too important to have that post be vacant. And then we have the openness to misunderstandings that come of that when, for example, the American ambassador to Pakistan makes an ill-advised tour of Pakistani-occupied Kashmir, and there's no core, I mean, The Pakistanis have a propaganda field day with this, and there's no corollary or check that we see within Foggy Bottom within the State Department as to uh, free Kashmir, free Kashmir, Svidigar, Jammu, and so forth. So we've got that aspect of it. But I'll go further. I mean, Joe Biden says diplomacy is back, and I'm all for that. And ultimately, I, I mean, I have my partisan opinions, but I want the United States to succeed. I want American diplomacy to succeed. If American diplomacy is to succeed, uh, to succeed, we need to have a fundamental rethink of our posture towards India. And we should have a consulate in Svidigar, period. Frankly, I can think of seven or eight other Indian towns or cities, Bangalore, for example, where we should have a consulate. The fact that, I mean, we have a consulate in Quebec City or in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I would argue that if you have a state that has 30 some odd million people inside India, that it's much more important for us to have a consulate there to know what's going on. Because when it comes to Canada, we can simply pick up the phone or, I mean, just drive an hour over the border and see what's needed. So 
ultimately, we've got to gear our diplomacy for the 21st century rather than for the mid 20th century. So that's a major problem. I don't think fully we understand what's going on. And the fact that we don't have an ambassador simply makes it worse because our diplomats aren't getting out and about as much as they should be to appreciate the true reality. And there are two years left in this administration. Of course, we just had an election um, in Congress, in the House and the Senate. Um, you know, the, the, the House has flipped. Uh, Senate is very tight. But um, even if the Democrats retain control of that, do you see a new ambassador even getting um, getting through in the next two years? Uh, what do you kind of see happening in the next two years in terms of this diplomatic push and just this general views or, or partnership with India? Okay. Normally, I would thought the poisonous atmosphere in Washington and the partisanship which has infused our foreign policy for the reason why we don't have an ambassador in a place. In the case of India, it's not that. It's a general uh, general fumbling of the football inside the White House and perhaps the Senate, uh, actually more inside the White House than the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Make no mistake, there is a bipartisan appreciation for the value of India. India is not Israel, it's not Saudi Arabia, it's not some, something where if the Republicans come in, suddenly we're gonna shift perspective. Everyone loves India and values the fact that we can have this relationship going forward and that this relationship needs to develop. I think, I, I mean, I hope that the enthusiasm inside New Delhi is actually matched for the enthusiasm we have on both sides of the, um, Aisle. And I do need to thank the Hindu America Foundation for this, because certainly the fact that there is such bipartisan support for India is a testament for all the hard work which you guys do, uh, which normally I don't have a day to day eyes on to. But certainly through through the um, through the rumor mill, I, I've certainly come to appreciate how effective you are. Um, the problem for why we don't have an ambassador is that. The Biden administration nominated someone. They didn't do a thorough background vet uh, vetting on the person. And the person had some personal issues, which more Democrats than Republicans have raised issues about. So this is a situation where Joe Biden or Joe Biden's office needs to call uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Menendez, and say, are we going to be able to resolve this? If we're not going to be able to resolve this, what normally happens is you have a face-saving way to have the nominee step back and you nominate someone else. What I would say is if we're able to get a Supreme Court judge um, rushed through the process because everyone recognizes the importance of having that nomination go through, there's no reason why the Senate can't do this with regard to a, um, a nominee to India in a bipartisan fashion. So we might not have the former mayor of Los Angeles, but if Biden administration's to send up a new nominee tomorrow, I believe they could get this done within two weeks mm. to schedule a vote and have it sail through so long as it is uh, probably at this point a veteran of uh, a diplomatic post that's already had um, their basic background check done. It shouldn't be that difficult. Now, of course, Ambassador Jones, Elizabeth Jones, has been sent as a temporary ambassador as the acting charge de d'affaire to New Delhi. And 20 years ago, she was a force to be reckoned with as a career foreign service officer. But she's in her mid-70s, and quite honestly, she doesn't have the energy she once did. So this isn't a long-term situation. We need to get a high-profile ambassador. We sent, for example, the late Walter Mondale to Japan. We need someone of that caliber, a former political official, uh, who can take the helms of the embassy in New Delhi. It's that important. I would look towards a retired senator, a former vice president, uh, someone along those lines. And it can be a bipartisan figure. It doesn't have to be a campaign donor. Okay. Interesting. I, I want to uh, switch uh, the view a little bit towards uh, Pakistan now um, and starting with U.S. policy towards Pakistan. I think a couple of things have happened of note um, within the last few months. One was a controversy around the F-16 uh, deal and the decision to continue selling not just F-16s, but I believe spare parts um, as well and equipment uh, related to F-16s to Pakistan, um, which, of course, it's been argued that uh, those are not actually used against terrorists. 
um, but rather have been used against um, against India or could be used against India and, um, you know, even in Afghanistan. Um, can you talk a little bit about the impact of that and, you know, the reasoning behind that and, you know, you know, what's kind of the, the view from uh, from D.C. towards Pakistan um, and why does it continue to kind of take this approach? I'll answer that question in a moment, but I'm going to use my prerogative as an academic just to give one other observation, which really struck struck me when I was up actually in Ladakh, um, that when I would talk to Baltistanis, Mm -hmm. the fact is that Baltistanis would have to come to India to be free Mm -hmm. because they no longer felt free in um, Gilgit and Baltistan itself. That itself is something which the entire world should understand when, when gauging this conflict between Pakistan and India, um, a conflict which has been imposed on India. Now, back to your question. Um, you know, the, the, the acronym, Pen, the Pentagon, the White House, everyone in the U.S. government loves acronyms. And all people talk about right now is GPC, Great Power Competition. And Pakistan and Pakistan policy gets wrapped up into this, especially with regard to China. But the problem is that if you are isolated or insulated in Washington, D.C. or U.S. Embassy, you may believe that the theories which you might hear in an academic setting have residence, that somehow you can peel Pakistan away from China by giving them military aid. That's wishful thinking, and that's very dangerous wishful thinking. Now. Yes, there is a China problem in the region. China has made encroachments on Nepal. It's made encroachments on Bhutan. It's not just in Ladakh where it's made encroachments. And I went up to the lake where um, all the Bollywood films now have a scene uh, on bicycles around and all that. Uh, you not only have encroachments up there, but you all, Arunachal Pradesh and so forth, you have encroachments all along that Chinese frontier. But Pakistan, unlike Nepal, unlike Bhutan, unlike India, who have been trying to resist this, they've decided that they rather become a vassal, a satrapy to China. And even if they no longer wanted to to take this position, the fact is they're, what, 40 some odd billion dollars in debt to China right now because of how crazy this China-Pakistan economic corridor was. And they are almost as much in debt as uh, in the past Sri Lanka was or as the Djibouti is uh, in East Africa. There's no way you're going to peel China, um, Pakistan away from China. And if these American diplomats, again, I've spent a lot of time in Islamabad. Islamabad is like an oasis. It's an artificial city. As you know, the capital uh, of Pakistan used to be Karachi. Mm -hmm. Islamabad was built in the 1970s. It it stands apart. You don't necessarily feel that you're in the rest of Pakistan. And if you're a diplomat, it's not just that you're in this garden city, Islamabad. You go to the Islamabad club where I used to meet uh, some of the former heads of the ISI. And you can pretend that you are, I mean, in colonial British India at that point in time, sipping pims and, and lemonade. And all this and forget that you're in one of the major terror sponsors of the world. The fact of the matter is you can lose sight of reality in a situation like this. You may believe that that elite bubble in which you exist represents all of Pakistani society. But what you got to do is escape the embassy's regional security officer, go into the streets of Pindi and hear what people are actually saying about the United States. Not just hear what they're saying about the United States on the streets of Pakistan, but why are they saying that? Hear what the politicians are saying. Hear what's on the television and the radio. Don't just watch um, NBC2 and see whatever the latest American sitcom is on satellite TV. (laughs) Actually look at what the Pakistani television is broadcasting, and you will understand that you are never going to be able to appeal this country away from China so long as the elected leadership of Pakistan is just a patina, is just in a mirage to cover up the real control, which is um, is in the hands of the Pakistani military of the Inter-Services Intelligence Agency. 
And we've seen, I think that, and I think you wrote about this actually pretty recently that uh, Pakistan has actually shared access to U.S. Uh, military technology with China. Um, and I think that was reverse engineered by China to be able to, to utilize that technology. So there have been some, you know, real consequences about this with this relationship uh, between Pakistan and, um, and China, and it goes beyond, you know, whatever it impacts, uh, how it impacts India, but also use uh, illegal use of us military technology. Well, we certainly have seen this in the past and, uh, I mean, most famously, although it wasn't um, it wasn't technology that was knowing or intentionally provided to Pakistan, where Pakistan, out of anger, lashing out after uh, the raid on Abbottabad, after the United States killed bin Laden, the distinguished guest of the Pakistani government, um, provided the I mean, we have one of our self helicopters, uh, which had to be scuttled and Pakistan provided all that um technology to the Chinese, whatever they could recover. The fact of the matter is no one in the U.S. military trusts the Pakistanis. So it's time that the U.S. State Department gets out of its um, wishful thinking. I mean, uh, maybe it's apocryphal, but they say that Albert Einstein said that the definition of insanity is doing the same action repeatedly and expecting different results each time. How many times are we going to try to bribe Pakistan and expect them to be pro-American? They're not going to be. They are ideologically. especially after the loss of Bangladesh, after Zia al-Haq, they're ideologically, um, there's an antipathist to the West and we need to recognize this and certainly quarantine them at best. They should never have gotten off the um, Financial Action Task Force gray list. We're coming up to the anniversary of um, the Mumbai attacks in which not only Indians were killed, but also several Americans, including I think a 12 or 13 year old girl were killed. We need to hold the Pakistanis to account for this, not forgive, not forget, because they're they're thumbing their nose on it. The last thing we should do is be giving them military equipment, which they can be that that can be used um, in pursuit of further terrorism. Uh, and I think at the center of that, um, as you point out, is the military um, intelligence establishment in Pakistan. Um, interestingly, we're seeing some challenges to that that we haven't actually seen um, historically by civilian politicians. In this case, um, the former prime minister Imran Khan has been challenging the, um, the the kind of the power of the of the military, especially when it comes to appointment of the next uh, chief of army staff. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know that? dynamic there, at least at a high level, and, you know, what that means for, you know, the region and even U.S. policy towards Pakistan, if any at all. Well, look, I'm no fan of Imran Khan, and I thought that he was a shameless populist um, when he was prime minister. But what he's basically done is um, what, what he's basically done is expose the the illusion. He's shown the man behind the curtain to use a Wizard of Oz metaphor, uh, who's really controlling things behind the scenes. And he's also exposed the fact that uh, whatever the order of um, the organization of government should be and the command structure within the Pakistani constitution uh, isn't what exists in reality because of the stranglehold which the ISI has over society. Now, ultimately, and I I think most Indians would agree with this, and frankly, a lot of Pakistanis would agree with this too. Pakistan is, I mean, first of all, it's in India's interest to have Pakistan succeed as a country, succeed as a peaceful, democratic country that is going to focus on the well-being of its citizens rather than to distract uh, and lash out um, in, in order to avoid accountability. So if Pakistan can... Uh, get rid of the terror sponsorship, if it can get rid of the conspiracy theories, that's to the benefit of everyone in the region. It could be to the benefit of ordinary Pakistanis, because as you know, South Asia, I believe, is the world's least economically integrated um, region of the world, even less so than the Middle East at the height of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Now, just think, if you allowed Indian trade to go through Pakistan to Central Asia, or Pakistani, if you open the Indian market to Pakistani goods, I mean, if Pakistan allowed this, the problem isn't India here. Pakistanis could become, I mean, incredibly much or I mean, several thousand dollars per capita each year wealthier as a society. They could solidify their middle class 
And it's the, the idiocy of the ISI and the, uh, the short-sightedness of their stranglehold, which is holding Pakistan back. So look, I mean, do I want the forces of conspiracy, which is the way I kind of look at Imran Khan to succeed? No. But does Pakistan need a fundamental reform? Yes. And the United States shouldn't do anything that strengthens the ISI, for example, by giving them military equipment uh, until Pakistan is a normal functioning um, democratic state. So long as it's a satrapy of China, it's incredibly naive and self-defeating to uh, give any aid or assistance to Pakistan. And I'm also talking civilian aid. But I mean, if you remember the Curry-Luger Amendment way back when, the whole idea of that was, look, it, it was notable, we shouldn't um, simply use the ISI as or, or the Pakistani military as our sort of uh, partner inside Pakistan. That has negative consequences. We should reach out to the civilian aspect of this. We gave them $7 billion and it actually made anti-Americanism worse because for two reasons. First of all, the military spread a lot of anti-American conspiracies that the civilian aid was meant to Christianize Pakistan. A bunch of nonsense. But also then Pakistan got itself, um, I'm not sure whether we're allowed to say this, it's Nickers uh, a twist. <laughs> Because, um, sorry, I come from a generation that's not as politically correct, um, because um, they were upset with all the auditing mechanisms, because the fact of the matter is Pakistan is a very corrupt country and we didn't want this aid to enrich uh, a bunch of Imran Khans and um, others from the political class. We wanted this to be um, to benefit ordinary civilians. In the end, it, it backfired. So. Does Pakistan, um, it, how to put this, is U.S. aid an entitlement to Pakistan? Absolutely not. We should cut it off. And if it makes for a much more difficult cocktail party or dinner conversation for the American DCM or political officer, I'm sorry, them's the breaks. Mm. Um, I want to kind of end the conversation today with uh, one final question um, going Further, uh, I guess, northwest um, on Pakistan's border, I think it was a year ago where, you know, we saw the messy withdrawal of um, U.S. forces from Afghanistan. Um, there was celebration in Islamabad and Rawalpindi as it being a success because, of course, the Taliban and all the groups that were operating their Haqqani network, et cetera, were always proxies of Pakistan. So, you know, that was thought as a, a huge victory where the Taliban came back to power. But we see something different happening um, on that border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, some skirmishes lately. Um, and also almost like Pakistan is uh, now beholden to the, the, to the Taliban as opposed to the other way around. Can you talk a little bit about what's happened on that um, border of Pakistan? What, what some of the developments have been there? Well, first of all, I agree with your analysis, so I won't restate it. I mean, the Taliban were a proxy of the ISI and um Certainly, we saw Pakistanis who were fighting, several thousand Pakistanis fighting and in many cases dying in the last push against the Afghan National Security Forces with the videos of their funerals and so forth are on YouTube. What I would say, just putting on my historian cap, you know, Saudi Arabia was a major exporter of extremism for decades on the back of the petrodollar. For ideological purposes. And it wasn't the, uh, the terror attacks of September 11th that convinced Pakistan to come in from the cold. It was two or three years later when you started having the compound bombings in Riyadh, you started having the assassination attempts against the Saudi interior minister, where they figured, you know, if, I mean, it's not going to work to just have jihad for export only. There's going to be a backlash. We need to crack down. We made a mistake. Now, in 2007, U.S. forces in Sinjar in Iraq. Sinjar was an area uh, which subsequently became known because of the Islamic State, and that's where the Yazidis had lived, where we captured from an insurgent a laptop that showed all the, um, basically, the Underground Railroad of suicide bombers into Iraq. I mean, if you Google the Sinjar documents, you can find analysis of all this, uh, translations, and so forth. The point is that the Syrian government, which many people said under Bashar al-Assad, being more secular, was actively working with Sunni radicals in order to try to destabilize Iraq. 
They wanted to capture the Muslim Brotherhood and use it for export only, thinking that they were going to be immune from the consequences. And yet four years later, the Syrian civil war breaks out. Hundreds of thousands of people are killed. Five million people flee Syria. And it's all because, I mean, Bashar al-Assad miscalculated this idea that he could utilize extremism, Sunni Islamic extremism, as a foreign policy tool and not suffer the consequence. Arguably, Turkey under Recep Tayyip Erdogan has discovered the same thing when it comes to some of the suicide bombings that have occurred, uh, not this latest one, which they blamed on the Kurds, although it might be the Free Syrian Army, um, which is more Sunni, but some of the massive bombings in Ankara and so forth, it's blowback. For Pakistan to think that they're immune from the same phenomena, that they can sponsor Islamists who don't believe in an ethnic national state, but believe in a religious state, and that somehow they're going to agree to uh, the domination of some of the Pakistani Punjabis, that they're going to agree to um, be ruled by these ISI two stars who sit in the Islamabad club and drink whiskey. That's just the ultimate naivete. They need to get out and look at what's happened to Karachi to get outside of their bubble and see how Karachi is basically in certain places like living in Mosul under the Islamic State. And the fact of the matter is Pakistan, our biggest concern about Pakistan right now needs to be what happens when that state collapses, especially if they don't get their affairs in order, because they have unleashed something which I mean, they're not going to be able to put it back in the box. Well, I think with that, we come to an end uh, of our conversation. I think wise, um, definitely not politically correct, but I think very precise analysis of what's happening in uh, in the region, in India's neighborhood, um, something that we should all be very concerned about in terms of Pakistan's behavior. And I think continued, um, you know, uh, you know, status quo policy by the U.S. towards Pakistan. Um, on the flip side, some very positive um, news coming out of India's Union Territory of Jammu and Kashmir and some of the developments there. Um, you know, let's hope that uh, that momentum is able to be carried forward. Um, we're able to see, you know, continued partnership between the U.S. and India, um, both on the diplomatic front as well as economically, um, security and um every sector across the board. Um, but a pleasure again, as always to have, uh, Dr. Michael Rubin on with us and, um, please do, um, follow him. He's at the American enterprise Institute. And Michael, can you tell us how best to follow you on social media? Um, I don't use Twitter for discussion, but I just push out my articles, um, with it. So just follow me at M R U B I N one nine seven one. If you're still using Twitter, if not, uh, everything I do is archived at the American Enterprise Institute website. That's easy to remember. It's just www.aei.org. And definitely a must read. Um, uh, I think Michael had combines a very punchy uh, writing style with uh, facts and uh, analysis. Um, I've enjoyed reading him, listening to him and um, look forward to having another conversation in the near future with uh, with you, Michael. So thank you again for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a nice five star review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. If you want to help ensure that more of these get made, you can make a donation to HAF at www.indoamerican.org slash donate.